aggressive and confrontational. That's what some Republicans have called Democratic New York Congressman Jamal Bowman. He says he's passionate and dedicated. Tonight, the Congressman joins us to discuss his controversial approach to governing and tackling the issues affecting New Yorkers as Metrofocus starts right now. This is Metro Focus with Raphael P. Roman, Jack Ford, and Jenna Flanagan. Metro Focus is made possible by Sue and Edgar Wackenheim III, Philemon M. D'Agostino Foundation, the Peter G. Peterson and Joan Gans Cooney Fund, Bernard and Denise Schwartz, Barbara Hope Zuckerberg, and by Jody and John Arnhold. Dr. Robert C. and Tina Sohn Foundation, the Ambrose Monell Foundation, Estate of Roland Carlin. Good evening and welcome to Metrofocus. I'm Jack Ford. New York Congressman Jamal Bowman is still relatively new to Capitol Hill, but that hasn't stopped his booming voice from advocating for the issues he cares most about. The second-term Democrat has reportedly embraced a more brash, somewhat confrontational approach to deliver his progressive policy message and to push back on certain Republicans and Trumpism. One of the more notable and viral examples of this unfolded just weeks ago, after six people were killed during a school shooting in Nashville. Congressman Bowman, a former middle school principal, was calling for reporters to hold the GOP accountable on the issue of gun control and gun safety. And that's when Republican Congressman Thomas Massey walked by, and this happened. Here, I'm talking about gun violence. You know, there's never been a school, in a school that allows teachers to carry. Carry would you, guns? Would you, would you, would you more guns lead to more death. Would you more guns lead to more death. Look at the data. You're not looking at any data. But are you listening to what I'm saying? Yeah, calm down. That, that's a, what calls that children are dying. I know. I've got Nine-year-old children. I worked in the school for 20 years. I worked in the school 20 years. In every school. I was a teacher. I was a school care. counselor. I was a middle school principal. I was in cafeterias every protecting kids every day of my care. career. There's never Child. been a shooting. And joining us now for much more on the gun safety debate and other major issues impacting New York New Yorkers, we'd like to welcome back Congressman Bowman to the show. Represents the 16th district, which includes Northern Bronx and parts of Westchester County. Representative Bowman, nice to have you back with us. Good to be with you. Thank you so much for having me. Let's start with the the, the question of guns and gun safety. Uh, I mentioned that you, you were, and you have a particular perspective on this, somebody who founded and was a principal of a middle school. You were a crisis intervention teacher early on in your career. When you hear the suggestion from that perspective that perhaps not, not the solution, but a part of a solution could be to train and arm teachers and administrators in our schools, what do you think about that? It's infuriating, and I can tell that that suggestion is coming from individuals and groups who have never worked in a school building before. Um, we go to school to educate. Uh, we have to write curriculum, design curriculum, write lesson plans, grade papers, build quality relationships with our families and students. To add on top of that, the training and carrying of a gun to use in the case of a mass shooting emergency to me is preposterous. 
especially when we are avoiding having conversations around other pieces of common sense gun reform legislation that the American people support. The American people support a ban on assault rifles. They support universal background checks. They support universal safe storage. And they support universal red flag laws. So it's asinine to suggest that we need to arm teachers before doing any of those other things. And then I would just add one point. The issue of gun safety is not just about the mass shootings, which are horrific, and we have to do something about that today. It's also the issue of gun trafficking into our most vulnerable communities that kill people on a day-to-day -day basis. So urgent action is needed right now. That one suggestion is not going to get us where we need to go. I mentioned that you have brought, and you're proud of this, a passionate voice to your work here in the People's House uh, in Washington, D.C. But what would you say to someone, maybe a constituent, a, a supporter, even who, who, who believes in the same issues that you believe in, who watched that clip and, and might say, yeah, but Congressman, does that type of aggressive conversation, does that really help get us all to a table where we can find some common ground? What, what's your response to that? I think we should all be passionate about our children being killed. Guns are the number one killer of children in America. America has 44% of the population and 40% of the guns. I think we should all be passionate about our children. We should all be passionate about senseless violence. And oh, by the way, a democracy cannot work without passionate dialogue and debate so that we can get a better understanding of each other and then move forward towards solutions. After that engagement with Representative Massey, we received hundreds of calls from all over the country uh, from people thanking us, thanking us for showing outrage, thanking us for showing passion. And the main problem is while we are more, or some are more concerned with decorum, children are dying children are hungry, uh, people can't afford housing or childcare or groceries. And part of my passion comes from my frustration being here for a couple of years and watching my colleagues being more responsive to corporate and wealthy interests than they are to the American people. That is unacceptable. Let me jump to a couple of other issues here because we, we love having you here. We got a lot to talk to you about. Uh, very much in the news lately has been the death of Jordan Neely, um, a man who would experience homelessness and, and um, mental turmoil. Maybe that's a good way to describe it. And the subsequent charging of Daniel Penny, a former Marine who we've seen had him in a, in a choke lock, who has claimed he was acting in self-defense, defense of others. Your perspective, how do you think the city has been handling this case and this situation? This is a systemic failure. Um, the city failed, the state failed, and the federal government failed. And we failed because we have defunded mental health supports and housing and support for those who are most vulnerable in our society over several decades. We do not have the resources to respond accordingly. That's why Jordan Neely got on that train and was screaming about being hungry and thirsty and, and his willingness to go to jail because so often people like him only get housing and food and stability in our prison system. The problem is they don't also get care. 
And so this is one of the reasons why we continue to have recidivism in our system. I know you heard and many heard he was arrested upwards of 40 times. To me, that points less to uh, him being a lifelong criminal, because if he was arrested that many times, they were probably very minor offenses and points more to the lack of care uh, for reentry and helping people to be stabilized. So the city, it seems that the district attorney took a few days to consider all of the evidence before deciding uh, to make an arrest here. And then the jury will decide, you know, what the what the consequences are, if any. I also just want to say this, you know, I've lived in New York for many, many years, and I've seen many people in distress. And what we've heard from uh, witnesses on that train was that Mr. Neely did not make any threatening gestures or remarks or even touched anyone. So for, for him to then be choked and killed uh, seems excessive. But again, the jury will decide on what direction they want to go. As you said, it'll all play out within a court and, and, and the jury will see all of the facts. But it does. We can't ignore the fact that there are there are significant systemic problems that have been illustrated by this situation. Let me jump. Speaking of significant systemic problems, let's talk about the migrant crisis. And we, we know that it, it does not just affect those people along the borders, but certainly all of this nation. New York City, uh, we've seen the the influx of literally thousands uh, of people. Uh, and the question is, how can they be housed? What are the processes that need to be done here? How do you think the the federal government is doing? Let's focus on, on New York City, New York State. And, and what more should they be doing? We need more money. We need more resources uh, in New York City and New York State to provide housing, health care, education, and care for the migrants that are coming here. You know, we are a nation of immigrants. We have always opened our doors to asylum seekers. And we need to be very clear. People are seeking asylum here because they are in danger for their lives in their home countries. And that goes way back to, you know, a lot of decisions made by the U.S. and other Western nations that have harmed Central and South America over the decades. So we need more resources and we need to describe the crisis for what it is. It's a humanitarian crisis, not a crisis of migrants coming here, because we have always opened our doors to migrants coming here, but now we have to take care of them. Um, and it's important also to say, just one quick point, mm -hmm. that it is often characterized that migrants are the ones bringing fentanyl and bringing crime. But the majority, over 80% of fentanyl that comes into our country is brought in by U.S. citizens. It's important for U.S. citizens to know that those are the facts. So we need more care. And again, this has been, been this has been a historic systemic uh, failure. Um, I want to quick quickly pivot the debt ceiling discussion. You know, we find ourselves yet again, and I will say this as an independent voter, I have always been. So uh, we find ourselves uh, uh, dancing uh, with some brinkmanship again on the edge of a precipice. Mm -hmm. uh, are are you optimistic that something will get resolved here in in, in enough time to eliminate this the the danger of a default? I am optimistic uh, because I don't think Republicans are that crazy. So I am optimistic. However, I'm very concerned uh, because we need to hear more from corporate America in speaking up and explaining the impact that a default 
would have on the global economy. We're talking about trillions of dollars being impacted. Um, and we're talking about loss of jobs. We're talking about vulnerability. We're talking about not just a loss of educator jobs, but law enforcement jobs, veteran benefits. It would be catastrophic if we allowed this to happen and allowed this to prolong. So we have to pay our bills. We also, and, and we have to have honest conversations about this. If Republicans uh, supported uh, equitable taxes for the wealthy and for large corporations, we can generate the revenue that we need to invest right. in our most vulnerable populations. Right. And right. they don't want to have that conversation. They're just having the conversation about cuts, even yeah. after we're coming from a pandemic and an insurrection. So right. we have to pay our bills. We have to make sure everyone contributes equitably to our economy, and right. then that will help our economy to take off. Last question. The issue of Representative George Santos. We've seen now that the, the matter was referred by the House officially to the House Ethics Committee, which has been doing an investigation. There's more now. There is the indictment that, that is out there um, percolating for him. Um, are, are you satisfied with this process? Let the Ethics Committee make their determination. Speaker McCarthy has said he's asking them to do it in an expeditious fashion and then decide what the House should do. I think Republicans should have joined us in voting to expel uh, George Santos. Um, they seem more concerned about their party and his votes in support of Speaker McCarthy than they are about the credibility of the United States government. Right now, we are in a credibility crisis. Um, and we are in a credibility crisis because many of our citizens don't trust us. And they don't trust us because of what George Santos represents. So expelling him shows the American people that we take governing very seriously, we take democracy seriously, and we can't have someone like that here. So we'll see what the Ethics Committee finds, but this hyper-partisanship that's been in place and has intensified since the former president, President Trump, right. uh, is really dangerous and hurting us overall. Representative Bowman, we always enjoy having you on here with us, having these conversations with you. We'll look forward to talking with you again real soon. Thanks for joining us. You take care now. You too. Thank you so much. Friendship is the foundation of so much good in our lives, but could it also be one of the keys to overcoming white supremacy and building a better functioning democracy? Our next guest, a familiar face here at Metrofocus, made it his mission to analyze two centuries of noteworthy interracial friendships that have often served as models for advancing racial equity and equality. From Thomas Jefferson and Benjamin Banneker, perhaps the first symbol of black excellence in America, to jazz singer Ella Fitzgerald and actress Marilyn Monroe, and to then President Obama and then Vice President Biden, Rutgers professor Saladin Ambar shows us how American icons helped build a better multiracial democracy. In his new book titled Stars and Shadows, The Politics of Interracial Friendship from Jefferson to Obama. And for more on this book and perhaps how the past can help shape a better future for us, it is our pleasure as always to welcome back Professor Ambar. Professor, good to see you again. Great to see you, Jack. Always good to be on Metro Focus. So let's start with, with the question I asked just about every author, and that is how and why did this book come about? Well, Jack, the short answer is that I had been working on a project related to W.E.B. Du Bois, the famed mm -hmm. Harvard graduate student and later scholar and activist. 
and his friendship with William James, who was his Harvard professor. And that relationship was pretty significant, and it led me to consider other relationships across the racial line that mattered in American history. But I, I think the deeper significance of why I began this project had to do with where I was in my own life, and I think where the country was in terms of its divisions and lack of connectivity, and seeking a way to marry the personal with the political that might answer some questions about how multiracial democracy in America might work. I'm also going to ask you a question that I frequently ask authors, and that's about the title. And I said it was Stars and Shadows. I want to hold it up here and show you the politics of interracial friendship from Jefferson to Obama. Stars and Shadows, where does that come from? It comes from a line, a passage in The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn by Mark Twain. Uh, readers uh, will recall that there is a moment in that wonderful and significant novel in American history, certainly not without its flaws, but a very significant novel, one where uh, Jim, the enslaved African-American, and Huck, the young white boy, are on the run. But before they run away, they have to put out a, a light, a fire, in a cave so that they're not discovered. And as Hucker calls, stars and shadows ain't good to see by. They've got to put out the light, and that's all they have to go by. Now, for me, stars and shadows represents just enough light to make it. And really what I think Twain is getting at is the friendship between Huck and Jim. That's the light, that's the way forward. There's just enough light to make it if the two of them are together. And I think that's really all we need. The, the journey's not gonna be necessarily well lit, but if we're together and if we take the right approach, humble ourselves and maybe we can make it together as well. Let me focus a little bit on some of the stories. You take 10 relationships here in this book. And again, you know, stretching out from starting from Thomas Jefferson and ending with President Obama, then Vice President Biden. Let me ask you to shine a little bit of a light on a couple of these stories, why you felt that they were important to you and to us as readers. So let's start where you start. And that is, as I mentioned, Thomas Jefferson and Benjamin Banneker. Tell us why that was important, why you wanted to include that relationship here. Well, here's Thomas Jefferson, really in 1791 as then Secretary of State, well known, obviously, as the, uh, the author of the Declaration of Independence, someone who hires Benjamin Banneker, a free, free Black man in the state of Maryland, to serve as a surveyor on the team of people who are going to outline what would become the boundaries of Washington, D.C. He develops this uh, admiration for Banneker as a scientist, and Banneker appreciates it, uh, that uh, effort on Jefferson's part to recognize him. But Banneker writes to Jefferson later upon returning home from his surveying efforts in Washington to admonish Jefferson about slavery. Now, I think it's important because this is really the first moment in which an African-American really locks intellectual uh, arms, if you will, with a founder of the American Republic. And there's a moment in the exchange of letters where not only Banneker challenges Jefferson on slavery, but really calls him to task for being a hypocrite for someone who's, who should know better, frankly, someone who signed the Declaration of Independence and really does nothing uh, to forward human progress along the lines of liberty. Jefferson writes back and, of course, says to Banneker, I marvel at your talent. I wish in so many words there were more uh, Negroes like you, etc. And he goes and forwards Banneker's uh, almanac onto France to the Academy of Sciences and lauds Banneker. But 
what happens is that this relationship really can't go much further. And, and I think it's in large part because Jefferson is unwilling to take the political risks which tr would come with truly making Banneker one of his brethren, as he describes in the letter. And so it's this first moment, this first fit and start in American national politics, where the possibilities of interracial friendship are being potentially demonstrated to the nation and then really drawn back in a way that I think signifies that the country is not prepared or not willing to be prepared to go further with respect to uh, expanding the boundaries of racial justice. Speaking of relationships and ones that were a little bit more genuine and lasted a little bit more, you also write about Frederick Douglass and Abraham Lincoln. It's interesting, Frederick Douglass, when you talked about Benjamin Banneker, we mentioned maybe the first black man celebrated for his accomplishments. Frederick Douglass, we know, and again, as you mentioned in the book, perhaps the, the most famous black man in the world at the time, certainly the most photographed black man in the world at the time and a relationship with Abraham Lincoln. How did that come about? Well, it came about, frankly, out of anger. And sometimes friendships come from honest places that are not necessarily the most pleasant. Uh, Douglas meets with Lincoln for the first time in 1863, and he wants to call Lincoln to task about the subject of black pay. Black soldiers in the Union Army are being paid $3 fewer than white soldiers. And he admonishes Lincoln about this. But here's the difference between Lincoln and uh, and Douglas versus Jefferson and Banneker. Lincoln pushes back and he engages in a real honest exchange with, with Douglas about his position. In other words, friendship requires honesty. It, requ it requires truth telling. And people may disagree and remain disagreeing uh, for some time. But in that honest exchange comes something else. And Douglas leaves that first meeting saying about Lincoln, I felt like a man in there. I, know, I never felt conscious of my race. I felt big in there. I was acknowledged for who I am. I was never made conscious that there was anything between us in terms of uh, racial distinctiveness. Uh, and that's important. By the time Lincoln meets Douglas for the second time, there's even greater admiration. And Lincoln is frankly asking Douglas to assist him uh, with uh, you know, bringing uh, out of slavery African-Americans in the South who are on plantations enslaved to help them escape to Union lines, to the Union Army lines, so that they can be free and strike a, a dagger blow to the heart of the Confederacy. And, you know, look, this is a kind of crazy plan, but Douglas considers it. It never comes to pass for a variety of reasons. But by their third meeting at the second inaugural, uh, Lincoln delivers in March of 1865, Douglas uh, meets Lincoln in the White House, and he takes some doing to get in there, of course, because he's initially not allowed in. He's told that we're not allowed to uh, you know, admission to any colored citizens. And Douglas says that order could not have been delivered by Abraham Lincoln. Um, Lincoln calls out to Douglas when he sees what happens, uh, that Douglas is being restrained by the guards. And he says, there is my friend Douglas very powerful and significant moment in American history because the president is now sort of articulating what that new birth of freedom that he suggested had to happen at Gettysburg would look like. It would involve more than just political freedom. It would involve friendship. The relationships we talked about here, some of the other in the book, are all focused on, to some extent, politics. But there's some others that are not necessarily political, but had an impact. And I think one of the more fascinating was the relationship between Ella Fitzgerald and Marilyn Monroe and something of an urban legend about their relationship that you dig deeper into it. Give us just a quick sense of, of what that part of the story is about. 
Well, the old urban legend and, and what social media often gets wrong about the relationship is that Marilyn Monroe somehow saved the career of Ella Fitzgerald by uh, telling um, the owner at the Macombo Club, a very famed club in Los Angeles in Hollywood, that she, Marilyn Monroe, would not uh, ever you know, grace the presence of, of that club again unless they allowed Ella Fitzgerald to sing because they had a, a racial ban against black artists. Well, that's not quite what happened. What really happens is that Fitzgerald is, is indeed blackballed, if you will, from attending and, and participating as a singer in, at the Macombo, but it's because she's not sexualized enough. She's not the kind of showgirl presence that they're looking for because there had been black singers there. But nevertheless, Marilyn Monroe does extend her neck. She does reach out and say, you know, I will use all of my power to support you uh, with my Hollywood friends and, and artists at the Macombo if you uh, grant her admission and let her sing. And that does happen, but we get some of it wrong, but ultimately Marilyn Monroe gets it right. She gets it right for maybe different reasons uh, than the story we tell ourselves about this particular interracial friendship, but she gets it right nonetheless. And, and I think it's suggestive of the fact that she herself uh, was a lot deeper and more significant a personality than often given credit for, for being, uh, given how she's been so, uh, you know, uh, you know, reduced to her looks over the decades. We always wrestle with what can we do? Are there things we can do, especially in, in our current environment, which is so fraught with, with tension and even hostility? And you talk in the book about the notion that there, there needs to be a command for us to talk to strangers. What do you mean by that? Why is that important? Well, I, I take that term from Danielle Allen's book uh, by the same title, Talking to Strangers is important because really it's the blocking and tackling, if you will, of democracy. When your institutions are failing, when uh, so much is going wrong in a multiracial democracy, you gotta begin to ask the fundamental questions. What is at the heart of who we are? And at the heart of who we are is, uh, is rooted in the idea of citizenship, tied to uh, fraternité as, as the French revolutionaries uh, thought of it. It's tied to brotherhood, sisterhood. It's tied to who we are as human beings. It's tied to something that is deeper and more ineffable uh, than just uh, institutions. You know, I just taught uh, Lincoln's second inaugural address and the last words of that address are with malice toward none. And that's a good start, right. with malice toward none, don't hate. But Lincoln goes further with charity for all. Yeah. Malice toward none is passive. Charity for all is suggestive of something that requires our energies. And that's what friendship does. It requires our focus and our energies to direct ourselves towards a better future. Lincoln's last words. That'll have to be our last words also. Once again, Professor Saladin Ambar, it's Stars and Shadows, The Politics of Interracial Friendship from Jefferson to Obama. It is a marvelous, informative, entertaining read. Professor, always good to talk with you. You take care. Likewise, Jack. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to MetroFocus. You can take our award-winning program with you wherever you go with MetroFocus, the podcast. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. Or simply ask your smart speaker to play MetroFocus, the podcast. Also available at MetroFocus.org, WLIW.org slash radio, and on the NPR One app. Mm -hmm.